The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. As we begin tonight, I want to look at a couple of scriptures that clearly contrast one another. Uh, The first one is in John chapter 17, where Jesus is uh, praying to his Father. And in part of that prayer, in verse 17, he says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, truth is everything to the child of God. We need to diligently seek the truth. And Jesus is praying that we would be sanctified by truth. That is, that we would be set apart from all the other uh, philosophies of this world. And this world has a lot of different philosophies about life. And then in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7 and verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So in John, Jesus is praying that his followers, his children, would be set apart by the truth. And here he instructs us to beware of false prophets those that would bring untruth, those that are set out to deceive. And he describes them as being as wolves in sheep's clothing. That is, there's nothing about them outwardly that would cause concern or caution or worry. But yet inwardly, underneath that outward appearance and that outward manner that they may have, there is ravening wolves. In other words, their intent is to deceive the Lord's people and take them away from the truth which the Lord has given us that we might be sanctified while we live here in this world. So with that in mind, my subject tonight is false prophets. Now we may think of false prophets as those in the Old Testament. And certainly there were false prophets in the Old Testament. We may think of false prophets as those that would misrepresent the gospel. But what I'm speaking of by false prophets are those who would try to present the various immoral philosophies of this world in such a way that the Lord's people will think that they're approved by the Scripture. Because oftentimes God's Word is misrepresented and unfortunately the Lord's people can be led astray. Now look at 2 Peter chapter 2, and I just want to go through some of the verses that concern this subject. 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, But there were false prophets also among the people, 
That's referring to the Lord's people in the Old Testament. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, that's to the New Testament church, who privily, that is privately, or we might say under the radar, who privily bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So were there false prophets among the Lord's people in the Old Testament? And there will be false teachers among us today. And they, off, they operate in a very deceitful way. And I want you to see how that's set forth in many of the scriptures that we reference. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul is writing to a New Testament church and he says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. Now notice how up to date that is. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Most any college campus you would find this displayed. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Notice he says it's after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Remember Christ prayed Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now how do they deceive? You would think, well, we profess to be Christians. We are hopefully familiar with the word of God. Hopefully we believe this is the standard of truth. We don't challenge its authority. So how is it that false prophets can deceive the Lord's people? You know, Jesus said in, I believe, Matthew chapter 24, he said that if it possible, they would deceive the very elect. And that word very there is just emphasizing they would deceive even the Lord's own people. Now we know that the world is under a constant state of deception, but Jesus says it's the purpose and desire to those that oppose God to deceive even the very elect, even God's own people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul here speaks of how the Lord's people are deceived. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and beginning with verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 
I just want you to notice that phrase, handling the word of God deceitfully. You see, Satan certainly understands that he can't just outright deny the word of God and expect us to accept that. He's, he's, uh, he's like that. He's the serpent. He's crafty. He knows that we put confidence in the word of God. So knowing that, why would he challenge the authority of scriptures? Well, here's one of the way he does that and the way false prophets do. He says they rest the scriptures. That means they twist them or they pervert them. You know, one of the attacks uh, on God's word uh, misrepresented in some of the uh, modern English translations is they carefully remove Jesus. I've got a book at home uh, that contrasts the King James translation to a lot of other modern English versions, and you would be amazed at how many times some reference to Jesus or who he is or what he does is removed. But you know, you really don't notice it unless you're reading it side by side. That's the intent. And that's what he's talking about here when he says they handle the word of God deceitfully. And then notice in 2 Peter chapter 3, and beginning with the verse 13. Second Peter 3, verse 13. Nevertheless, we according to His promise look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things... Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him hath written unto you as also in his, all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, that means twist or pervert, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Now, so far, I'm not giving you illustrations of how this is going on even in our modern world, but I just want you to see this concept taught in the Bible. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. Peter said there were false prophets among the people and there shall be false teachers among you. We read that Paul told the church at Philippi to beware. We see that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 4 that there are those that handle the word of God deceitfully. And then here in 2 Peter 3, he says they rest, they twist, they change, they pervert the scripture. Now one more. 
Look at Romans chapter 16. Now, to rest the Scriptures and to handle the Word of God deceitfully is to describe the action and the approach of the false prophets. But now here in Romans 16, it focuses more on how they deliver it after they've perverted it. Romans chapter 16, and beginning with verse 17, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them, means identify them, which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good work, words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Now we're not talking about here about children of God that have different beliefs but both have a sincere desire to serve the Lord. That's not what's under consideration here. These are those that have a deliberate purpose to deceive God's people. And notice how, how they accomplish this. The end of verse 18, by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Now that word simple means seducible. They can be seduced. They can be taken. Because they're gullible, because they're not established, because they're not set apart by the truth, they can be deceived by good words and fair speeches. You know, there are some well-known false prophets in our world today who claim to have the ability to lay hands on people and heal them. And oh, there are so many sincere children of God who are deceived. Notice what he says. Uh, he says... Uh, verse 18, they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. In one place it says they will make merchandise of you. They can make a good living deceiving the Lord's people. So with that in mind, let's look at, think of that word, uh, simple, meaning seducible, and look at these two passages in Proverbs. First of all, Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 15. The simple believeth every word, but the prudent man looketh well to his going. Again, the simple is someone that's easily persuaded. They're not established. They're not convicted and set apart by truth. And he says, the simple believeth every word. In other words, any new philosophy that comes along, they're apt to embrace it and believe it. And then look at Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 3. He's speaking again here. And he says, A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. And did not Peter say, 
that our adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Oh, many of God's children today have been misled by the perversions that are so prevalent in our world today. Moral perversions. They've been convinced that this particular behavior, this particular way of living is acceptable to the Lord. And oftentimes they are reached that point because they have been deceived by the false prophets. So let's shift gears now. And here's what I want us to consider for the balance of our time. How do we deal with this problem? So far, I've tried to establish from the Scripture that this is a problem that has always been among the Lord's people. And if it was a problem in the first century New Testament church, then it would be unreasonable to say it's, it's not a potential problem among us today. I'm thankful the Lord has blessed us with a faithful pastor who will not compromise the Word of God. And he is trying to deliberately sanctify you by the truth but there's plenty of uh, people out there in the world that intend to do just the opposite of that so let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 10 now he's speaking here of the teaching gifts that the Lord has given to the church. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has called men to be teachers of the Word, and this is the reason God calls them, that they might perfect the saints. And the word perfect doesn't mean uh, that you would become flawless and sinless, but it means bring to maturity or to be fully developed or full grown. That's the purpose of the teacher of the Word is to bring God's people along and bring them to maturity. Did not Peter say in one of his epistles that we're to desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby? That's the purpose of these teaching gifts. He says it's for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith. I believe the Lord's blessed us with that here. Amen. We've come in the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God and to a perfect man and to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Now listen to this. That we henceforth from right now forward, from the time that we have been set apart by truth, from the time that we have, now that we have grown in the faith, 
Now that our knowledge is increased, he says, we have learned truth under these teachers that henceforth will be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Notice that. They lie in wait to deceive. They do it with cunning craftiness. They use trickery. They're very subtle. They present it in such a way that you don't realize it's contrary to the Word of God. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 2 Corinthians 10, and verse 3. Having stated in Ephesians that he gave these teaching gifts to build up and edify the church, so we will no longer be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. He now says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3, for though we walk in the flesh... We do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now listen to this. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now this one verse has packed in it the real points that I'm trying to emphasize. Paul says as a minister that I am casting down imaginations. The word imaginations there means reasoning. Anything that's reasoned to be truth that's not truth. It doesn't matter how it's presented. It doesn't matter how educated the man might be. Paul says I'm going to cast down all reasonings that what? Exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Paul said, let God be true in every man alive. No matter how popular some worldly philosophy may become. Paul says, if it exalts itself against the word of God, cast it down. Amen. Casting down imaginations and listen to this, every high thing. You know, Jesus said that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. If it's accepted wholesale by the world, even the religious world, if it's just readily and easily accepted, that's usually a mark that it's not the truth. Cast down every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. There are many ways that can be done. One of the ways it's done is you'll say, well, this man is an expert. You know, there's a lot of experts out there that the only reason you know they're an expert is they said they were. There's a lot of those kind of experts. But somebody says, well, he has a degree in this. 
He's, he's, look at the, the, he's on the board of this organization. Surely this man knows what he's talking about. That's why Paul is saying, cast down every high thing. Those things that would be considered high in the world. That surely this is what you ought to believe. This is surely the way this ought to be done. Paul says if it's against the word of God, no matter how high it's esteemed by the world, cast it down. Now listen to this. This is a struggle for all of us. But notice how important it is. Think about it in our world today. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In other words, whatever I hear out there, I'm going to pull that in and focus on the Word of God and I'm going to capture all my thoughts to the obedience of Christ. I'm hit with all these different ideas and opinions and and philosophies of men. And when I'm hit with all of that, I'm going to, I'm going to tune into what the Bible says and bring every other thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's what the word of God is for. Now I normally don't give uh, detailed illustrations But that's what I'm going to try to do for the time we have left. I think it's important that we not only recognize that there are false prophets, that they do intend to deceive the Lord's people, and that the Lord has given gifts to the church so that we won't be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. And he tells us there's a lot of high things we've got to cast down. But I want to apply that to the problems of our generation. See, we have this clear principle that there's high things out there in the world that are highly esteemed that this is the way it ought to be. But if it doesn't match up with the Bible, we have to cast it down. Now I want to begin as far as giving you a couple of illustrations with Genesis chapter 1. Now as we read this, this is God's order for human relationships. This is the way God set it up. We want to read first of all in Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God made two kinds of men. Male and female. Man or men is the generic term. It's referring to human beings and he made two kinds. Only two. Male and female. Biological males and biological females. And God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now notice in Genesis chapter 2 beginning with verse 18. And this is just giving you some more information on this. And the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone. 
It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Now he's already said he made male and female. So obviously we can conclude from this, when the Lord said, I'm going to make a helper that is suitable for Adam, who is a male, that obviously means he's going to create a female that's suitable for Adam. And uh, verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl there and brought them unto Adam uh, to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl there and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found in the help meat that is suitable or appropriate for him. God had created the animal kingdom. But none of those of the animal kingdom were a suitable helpmeet for Adam. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. These are some simple, basic truths. God made male and then female for the male. He told them, be fruitful and multiply. He also informed us in chapter 2 that the purpose of God making a female for the male was companionship. That was the purpose. It's not good that man be alone. This is a very simple thing to understand. But let me give you an illustration of some of the high things that are exalted against that. Now, this that I'm going to read to you was taken from a little book called The Bible, Christianity, and Homosexuality. Written by Justin Cannon, who is an ordained Episcopal minister. So this is not someone that at first you would think is going to oppose the Word of God. This is an ordained minister. He has a bachelor's degree and a master of divinity. You know, it'd be easy to say, well, here's an ordained elder. Here's a man that's highly educated. Uh, Surely, whatever he says is going to be the truth. Well, here's what he said about what I just read you. Now listen carefully. See if you notice it. And then we'll state what it is. The authors of Genesis were intent upon answering the question, where do we come from? So far, so good. Then is now the only plausible answer is from the union of a man and a woman. So far, so good. The creation story in Genesis does not pretend to be a history of anthropology 
or of every social relationship. Watch out now. It does not mention friendship, for example, and yet we do not assume that friendship is condemned or abnormal. It does not mention the single state, and yet we know that singleness is not condemned, and in certain religious circumstances, it is held in very high esteem. In other words, Adam and Eve is the only relationship for this specific account that makes sense. In other words, we're dealing with creation here, and we're dealing with where we came from, we're dealing with reproduction, and so the only thing under consideration here is reproduction. Now watch this. It is a story about, pre, about creation and only a procreative, that is, heterosexual relationship would be appropriate for this particular story. If someone in spite of this were to base his or her opinion of homosexuality on the creation story alone, their stance would not only be out of context, but also based on a weak argument. Now you see what he's doing? He's saying the purpose of that Genesis account is not to address all the different kinds of relationships that there might be between human beings. It's only answering the question, where did we come from? See how careful that is? He doesn't necessarily condemn it. He just takes away what is, all, what is also being clearly thought, uh, taught there. Now, I sent this man an email. I haven't heard back from him yet. But one of the questions I asked was, where do I go in the Bible to establish social order? If it's not established here, where do I go? The Lord made male and female, told them to replenish the earth. He told them it's not good for male to be alone. He made a female for the male. He doesn't have to say what all that doesn't include. Once you establish God's order, it excludes everything outside of that order. He doesn't have to condemn. He, you know, he says he, he doesn't condemn friendship or he doesn't condemn singleness. When God gives you what the pattern is, that's the path. Amen. Amen. Now let me read you what he said about Romans 1, but first we'll read in Romans 1. Romans 1, and beginning with verse 21. Because that when they knew God... They glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. If you ever get to the point that you're saying, I know all the answers, you're on dangerous ground. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and the birds and the four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up, turned them over to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor 
their own bodies between themselves who change, listen to this now, who change the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Now let's emphasize a few things that are stated here. They worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. When you begin down that road, anything is possible. Any and all perversion is possible when you start worshiping the creature more than the creator. And notice also, he uses that expression in verse 26, even their women did change the natural use. And then in verse 27, likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman. What's he talking about here? He's saying God made male for female, female for male, and that is the natural use. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, that means immoral, and receiving in themselves that just recompense of their error, which was me. Okay, here's what was said about that by the same Arthur. Now listen carefully. They left the natural use of the woman which implies that these men were heterosexual by nature. Now watch this. He's not addressing biology. He's addressing the way you feel, what your attraction is. These men were heterosexual by nature. We're going to see as we read this that he's implying that they might be homosexual by nature. These men divorced themselves from their own nature, that of heterosexuality, and were consumed with passion for one another. Women did likewise. As we see, Paul is talking about heterosexual individuals engaging in homosexual sex, which is contrary to their nature. See what he's doing? He doesn't say male and female. He doesn't say biological males and biological females. He's speaking in terms of those that are heterosexual and those that are homosexual. And he says Paul is talking about heterosexuals, which could be a male or female, engaging in homosexual sex, which could be a male or female, which is contrary to their nature. Now listen to this. Anyone who isolates the phrase natural use to declare homosexual relations unnatural is interjecting their own prejudice and reading entirely outside of context. Even if we were to isolate that phrase, it can only be used to condemn. Now watch this. Even if we were to isolate that phrase, 
It could only be used to condemn heterosexuals who go against their own heterosexual nature and engage in homosexual activity. Now, keep listening. As Peter Gomes, preacher to Harvard University, he ought to know what he's talking about, further clarifies in his book, it is clear that St. Paul distinguished as we must between homosexual persons and heterosexual persons who behave like homosexuals. But what is clear is that what is against nature is one believing after the manner of the other. Now you see what he's saying? He's saying your nature is not your physical anatomy. Your nature is which you're attracted to. And the conclusion is, if I'm naturally attracted... Now this is the conclusion. This is what it leads to. If I'm naturally attracted to other men, it would be against my nature to be with a woman. That's what he's saying. And the sin under consideration here is not men with not biological men with biological men and biological women with biological women. He says the sin, the going against nature, is to, to go against the, the particular sex that you're naturally attracted to. It's totally subjective. God's Word is objective. He made physical males and physical females. This man is an ordained minister in the Episcopal Church. I looked him up on the internet. Here's what the LA Times said about him. If I can find that one. The LA Times said that this that I just read to you, which is part of a book, is an illuminating analysis that the Bible doesn't condemn faithful gay relationships. See, that's what the world's saying. The world's giving you high things. This is what the experts are saying. This is what the preacher at Harvard is saying. This is what the man with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and an ordained minister. This is what they're presenting as the truth of God's Word. Oh, may we pray, Lord, sanctify Thy people through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Now let me give you one other illustration. You know, there are some people, such as I believe this represented, that are deliberately misrepresenting the Word of God. They're twisting it to fit the way they want to live. But you know, there are also people that are misled or led astray from God's Word by others that are not intentionally trying to harm them but they themselves are not established in the Word of God, and yet they influence this other person who was doing it the way the Word of God says, but this other person has unintentionally 
taking them away from God's word. When you give someone advice, make sure it's God's word. When you're talking to a younger person, don't give them your opinion. Give them God's word. Now this other one had to do with the discipline of children. Now let me read you a scripture about that. And I want to read you an account of a mother that was doing exactly what this scripture taught. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. The rod there is the corrective attention getter and the reproof is that gentle reassurance and warning, letting the child know you love them, but you have to do what mom and daddy say. This is not abuse. This is not a parent that's angry. This is not a parent that's taking out their frustrations, but they're correcting rebellious behavior. Here's what this woman said, and she was right on track. She said, by the time my baby became a toddler in need of correction, I felt fully convinced that spanking was the most effective means of discipline. Whenever we spanked Derek, we'd allow the spanking, we would follow the spanking with a time of hugging and assurance of our love for him. We didn't spank in anger or as an impulsive reaction. We always surrounded a spanking with instruction and follow-up to make sure that Derek understood why he had been spanked. Over the course of a few months, Derek became an obedient, well-mannered father. That's just right, isn't it? That's implying exactly what that verse teaches. But this woman was led astray. One day I was talking to my mother. See, it might be somebody you otherwise have great respect for. Her mother didn't want to cause her any problems. It wasn't an, a deliberate effort to interfere with her parenting in a harmful way. One day I was talking with my mother and telling her something about Derek when she suddenly said, I don't think you should be spanking him. I couldn't believe my ears. Couldn't she see how well it was working? Hadn't she spanked me as a child? But more importantly, didn't she know that the Bible commands it? I went to the Bible to copy down all the rod verses in Proverbs. She's doing the right thing, isn't she? I knew that would prove to her that I was following God's command. But in trying to prove my mother wrong, I found instead God turning my heart around. Now you're going to find out this wasn't God. As I worked to construct my defense of spanking, I flipped through my copy of the discipline book by Dr. William Sears. To see what this Christian pediatrician had to say about spanking. I was stunned to find his suggestion that the rod in Proverbs refers to an idea of authority rather than a literal rod. 
This is what Dr. William Sears told her. Rick Creech, a Bible scholar and author of Should Christian Parents Spank Their Children, says, in order to interpret the Bible correctly, we must always remember that some passages are meant to be taken literally and others are meant to be taken symbolically. He makes the conclusion that it is consistent with other parts of Scripture to say that a rod is symbolic when used in reference to correcting someone. See, she was led astray. And if you read the rest of this article, which, by the way, appeared in Christian Parenting Today, magazine. See how you have to beware? You may be in a doctor's office and there's some magazines there on the table. Oh, this says Christian parenting today. I can certainly believe whatever's in here. No, you can't do that today. Let's see if the Bible supports the idea that the rod is symbolic. Let me read you two verses in Proverbs and see if you think the rod is symbolic. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 18. Chasten thy son while there is hope and let not thy soul spare for his crying. That doesn't sound symbolic to me. That sounds like what I've experienced. How about you? I remember daddy spanking me and saying, you're going to do it anymore? No, I'm not going to do it anymore. Spank me some more. You're going to do it again? No, I'm not going to do it again. Let not thy soul spare for his crying. That doesn't mean that you're unmerciful. That just means, you know, a child can start performing before the first lick is applied. They can make you think they're dying. Let not thy soul spare for his crime. I just can't see that as symbolic. Amen, but this woman that understood that was led astray by her mother. And I know her mother didn't mean her harm. And there are plenty of people today that right off the bat They'll say, now we need to talk about the discipline of children. And the first thing you need to understand is you should never spank your child. A lot of them will start it off that way. It's not even part of the conversation. And then look at Proverbs 23. Verses 13 and 14. Withhold not correction from the child... For if thou beatest him with a rod, he shall not die. Does that sound symbolic? He'll feel like he's dying. I've made this comment often that the rod described in Scripture literally means a small shoot, which is referring to what we would call a switch. And the, the reason God, one of the reasons God designed the switch is because it makes the child feel like he's dying, but it doesn't injure him at all. It stings, but it doesn't injure. Thou shalt beat him with a rod, and he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Oh, look at the deliverance that the rod brings. You know, there's spiritual chastisement too, isn't there? Right. Yes, sir. <laughs> you know, Jonah disobeyed the Lord. 
And the Lord didn't symbolically put him in the whale's belly, did he? He literally was swallowed up by the whale. And Job said, out of the belly of hell, I cried out unto thee. Well, that'd be hell, wouldn't it? In the belly of a whale, in the ocean for three days, in three nights. And the whale didn't spit him out until he said, salvation is of the Lord. Beware of false prophets. Don't think that that's just something that applied to Old Testament times. Don't think that that just applies to a different form of the gospel. Don't think it just applies to our basic doctrines as a church. But I believe today the main point of attack is on moral issues and how we live our lives. And oh, it is being brought by not only wolves in sheep's clothing, but it's being taught by other children of God who have themselves been deceived. I hope these two illustrations I've gave you let you know how current and relevant this issue is. If you read something that's supposedly an explanation of Scripture and you say that doesn't sound right, you go talk to one of these ordained elders among our churches. And the Lord will bless them to show you what it actually means. But what you can do on your own is every time you hear something that you know doesn't agree with the Bible, even if it's Dr. So-and-so, even if it's a preacher at Harvard, no matter who it is, say, God is much more intelligent than that man. Amen. And here's what God said. And I'm going to accept what God said and reject what that man said. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.